Hello and welcome to the Reorg Europe podcast. It's Wednesday, February the 16th. I'm Richard Woolley, editor in Reorg's London office, and today I'm going to be joined by Emerging Markets reporter Jack Lawrenson for a special report on the situation in Ukraine. We're also going to hear from managing editor Luca Rossi about Italian oil field services company Saipem. The Ukrainian economy and its credit market has been under severe pressure since the end of November, when Russia began increasing its military presence in the region, effectively encircling Ukraine and raising fears of a possible attack. Diplomatic efforts since then have failed to reach a breakthrough, and the US and UK have warned that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is now imminent, while Russia has said that it poses no threat and plans to pull its forces back. Jack? You obviously lived in Ukraine for some years and cover Ukraine and Russia for Reorg. So you're well placed to, to bring us up to date. Can you just tell us what the latest on the situation is, please? So it's a very fluid situation. And it's changing on an hourly basis in response to who has said what and which Russian troops have been moved to where. Russia has basically surrounded Ukraine with about 150,000 soldiers, lots of equipment that it would need for an invasion. And this has understandably spooked some investors and impacted the credit markets. Practically every Ukrainian company that we cover, as well as the sovereign, has been negatively impacted by this. And some companies have told us of uh, contingency plans they're putting in place if Russia invades, such as plans for their exports, if the ports, for example, are blockaded or seized. The state banks, the agricultural holdings, the energy companies, the state infrastructure companies, they're all feeling the pressure, uh, both on their bonds and on their day-to-day business operations as well. What's the feeling in Ukraine at the moment, um, you know, both among the people and the companies that we're covering? Uh, people are annoyed at the prospect that air travel may be affected as this disrupts uh, business as well as daily life. Uh, but broadly speaking, people in Ukraine are stoic. Uh, refusing to panic, despite the alarming information coming to them from the West. Uh, companies we speak to, such as uh, Metinvest, the Metals and Mining Group, and MHP, a big agricultural company, uh, they tell us they, they see the risk, they recognise it, um, and the impact that it's having on the value of their bonds. Um, but they have been through worse in recent years and are prepared for eventualities, uh, like I mentioned possibility of losing access to Ukrainian ports. I mean, just to recap briefly, the latest is that Moscow says it plans to pull back these forces after it's finished with these drills and manoeuvres, but many remain sceptical about this. And on February 15th, there was a major cyber attack on Privatbank and Oshadbank, um, as well as on the servers of the armed forces and the defence ministry. So it is difficult to predict what will happen next, and there's not yet any real evidence of de-escalation. And this is why since November, many investors have been reassessing the risk profile in Ukraine, and some of them have been closing out their positions. We saw last week, obviously, a number of countries um, ordering their citizens to leave Ukraine immediately, and some companies are also asking staff to leave. What are you hearing from your sources on the ground there? So by now, most European countries have told their citizens to leave Ukraine and altered their travel advice for the country. Uh, Some flights have been cancelled or diverted. I know a handful of people who've left, um, largely because their employers asked them to. But I also know lots of people who have decided to stay uh, because of their commitments in Ukraine or because they think that the risk is perhaps being overstated um, by the West 
as they're engaging in you know geopolitics with Russia and Ukraine is caught in the middle. But the UK and US have warned that an attack is imminent and highly likely. So this, combined with the 150,000 Russian soldiers and hundreds of tanks and warplanes within striking distance, does put an obvious strain on markets and the normal course of uh, doing business. Yeah, just to, to pick that up, what has the impact been so far on the Ukrainian markets? Can you tell us about some specific companies that have been affected? So everything we cover in Ukraine is being impacted by this, uh, understandably. And the Ukrainian companies that we talk to about it are obviously not happy and think that the stress is being largely driven by the statements and the rhetoric, um, particularly these warnings coming from the West. Uh, and we have to keep in mind that, that while Ukraine may be facing this new round of aggression from Russia, this is nothing new for them. They're, they've become somewhat used to it, and they've already been in a de facto but undeclared state of war with Russia since uh, Crimea was seized in 2014. But the market does respond when the US and UK say that an invasion could be coming at any moment. Uh, for example, the sovereign bonds and the GDP warrants, they've fallen consistently since this uh, crisis started, uh, since around the end of November. Um, they recovered by a few points this week, um, but the, the GDP warrants issued to investors in 2015 as part of the debt restructuring, they're still quoted well below par at about 71. So if you're an investor that bought them at 117 just before last autumn, you may not be very happy today. At the same time, all of the country's sovereign bonds um, have seen sell-offs uh, since this crisis started. Uh, the closer-term maturities uh, especially vulnerable um, because there's a fear if Russia compromises the government in Kyiv, uh, the servicing of foreign debt could look very difficult. And what's the impact of all this on Ukraine's sovereign debt? Could we be looking at another debt restructuring? So there's no immediate danger of this right now, but it could happen as a consequence of Russian aggression. Yes, uh, this was explained to us by our guests in a recent webinar. Um, especially if the government in Kyiv is sufficiently undermined or toppled, it can clearly hinder um, the ability to pay investors and deal with debt maturities. This would result in the possibility of default. And also, um, if the government is overthrown uh, and replaced with a Russian proxy, for example, like uh, former President Viktor Yanukovych, this could weigh on the legality and lawfulness covenants um, in the bonds, again triggering a, a possible default. Ukraine leaving the IMF um, can be another trigger, uh, and so can the government being sanctioned if it was, for example, an unelected uh, pro-Russian government and it came under sanctions. All right, and what's the latest on how bonds issued by Ukrainian companies are being affected? Are they still falling? Well, they've all sold off uh, quite a bit since the crisis began. Um, they have remained largely flat this week, except for the oil and gas group Naftohas, uh, which saw two of its bonds lose another five points. This uh, coming about after the Russian-German Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline was brought up in Kyiv. Um, during a visit by the German Chancellor. Uh, Germany and Ukraine, they have fundamental disagreements over this um, gas pipeline, which goes from Russia right into Europe, into Germany, under the Baltic Sea. It's been completed, but it's awaiting uh, regulatory approval in Germany. The problem for the Ukrainians is that it allows 
Russian gas transit to bypass the Ukrainian system, uh, depriving Ukraine of very sizable gas transit revenues, and also removing a possible deterrent to further Russian aggression. Uh, but Germany and Russia say it's purely a commercial project and should go ahead. Ukraine and its closest allies, they say, no, this is an economic weapon and it can be used against Ukraine and Europe. And obviously Ukraine and Russia are big commodities countries. Uh, should we be concerned about this? Not just yet, but it is something that needs to be monitored. Ukraine has, for example, a quarter of the world's black soil. It's a huge agricultural player and is becoming a really big exporter of food and a contributor to global food security. But it needs access to its ports on the Black Sea and the Azov Sea in the east and the southeast um, for a lot of these exports, as well as the exports of important commodities such as iron and steel, for example. And at the same time, um, while there's a lot of talk about new rounds of sanctions on Russia if it attacks Ukraine, we shouldn't ignore how Moscow can also hit back at the West. It can cut off oil and gas supplies, obviously, but it can also withhold um, exports of important goods like fertilizers, uh, rare metals, um, a lot of titanium and palladium is produced and exported in, uh, from Russia. So there's still a lot of risk on the table, and many in the market will be crying out for a diplomatic solution to this crisis as soon as possible. Then again, risk can mean opportunity. So are there any investors who are looking on this as a positive thing? Well, depending on how you assess the current risk climate and depending on uh, who you think will blink first, so to speak, uh, there is an opportunity to buy debt at the moment, um, especially Ukrainian bonds at a heavy discount right now, um, especially the GDP ones, which have shown that they can bounce back very quickly when the macro situation stabilises. But they're currently at about 50% of their value compared to a few months ago. But then again, they can also go down even further if the situation does not pivot in a more you know, positive direction. And finally, it can be difficult, obviously, um, but are we making any predictions for the rest of the week? Well, we have to be careful about making predictions. Um, but one thing that seems clear is that even if Russia doesn't invade this week or next, there will still be more risk and stress associated with business and capital in Ukraine um, and also in Russia. Uh, the situation there, I mean, it needs to improve in a meaningful way for investor confidence to properly recover. And as for what happens next, um, a decision needs to be made by the Russian leadership. The ball still seems to be in Moscow's court right now, but at least diplomacy still appears to be on the table. But I think um, investors and the rest of us are really waiting to see what Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, will decide to do and how the Ukrainians will respond. Italian oil field services company Saipem said at the end of January that it will record a loss of more than one-third of its equity in 2021. It also has 500 million euros of bonds maturing in April. Hi Luca, can you fill us in on some of the background on Saipem? Hey Rich, so Saipem is a very systemic business. Like its major shareholders are CDP, Casa Depositi Prestiti, which is a state lender, and the oil multinational ENI, ENI. So we think the situation is quite binary. Saipem's management structure has changed, and ENI and CDP have sent over some managers to conduct a very in-depth review of the company's backlog. 
So quite a lot will depend on how the review will go. It means that the review is very likely to identify issues in certain contracts of the companies, but it depends on how big and how many these problems will be. In a worst case scenario, if there is going to be a lot of unexpected huge issues which haven't been, hadn't been identified before, well, the situation might become extremely problematic. Otherwise, it will stay as a difficult situation which can still be addressed. What options does the company have as you see it? So we think that the most likely option for Saipem is a recapitalization from the shareholders, the main shareholders, any and Casa Deposit in Prestity. At the same time, we understand that Saipem is in talks with its banks to obtain a bridge loan if any and CDP commit to the capital increase. So the bridge loan could be used along with the company's cash to deal with the maturities in April 2022, in a couple of months. So this would be a recapitalization in bonus. That's, um, that's a way to define, at least uh, in Italy, uh, um, um, a process which doesn't imply a restructuring. So a process which does not enter into a restructuring procedure. Um, along with the capital increase, there could be an amend and extend of Saipem bank debt and the provision of new bonding lines by the lender banks. The other question is, what will happen with the 500 million bonds due in September 2023? So we think it's possible that a company and its banks will want to extend the bonds maturities too, to avoid banks ending up on the hook. But this will need the consent of what appears to be a pretty fragmented investor base in, in uh, Saipem's bonds. An alternative which is probably not very likely, could be trying to refinance the bonds once you have completed the capital increase and the bank debt has been rolled. And what happens if shareholders find bigger than expected issues in the company's backlog and decide not to recapitalize? So since we're talking about a very systemic business, which is involved in a lot of key contracts and projects, the priorities would probably be the business continuity and the preservation of jobs, Therefore, Saipem, we think, could file for an extraordinary administration, which is an insolvency procedure applicable to large-scale businesses with significant debt that are taken over by the Ministry of Economic Development. Let me underline that this is a pretty, a pretty unlikely scenario for, for the company. Other alternatives in terms of restructuring could be a concordato, which is a long and complicated in-court restructuring process that would be highly disruptive for a business like Saipem and the ability of Saipem to, for example, win your contracts. You basically know how to enter a concordato, but you don't know how you will emerge from it. And another alternative could be the use of Article 182, which is a consensual out-of-court procedure which needs the consent of at least 60% of the creditors and therefore would be pretty difficult to obtain given Saipem's fragmented investor's base. So in Italy, there is also Article 182 Septius, which is a variation of Article 182 that enables 70, 75% of a company's financial creditors agreeing to a plan to cram down the, down the 25% of dissenting financial creditors. 
It's a bit like the UK scheme of arrangement, but is still largely untested in Italy. So I'd suggest the listeners to look at how, for example, Ansaldo Energia, which is another company where CDP had a large stake, was treated when it was in financial distress and had the maturity approaching. It's, a, it's an interesting example to watch. Putting the bonds aside for a second, does the company have enough cash to run its business? So we believe that Saipem will burn cash to run its operation and it needs around 2.0 billion euros of new money over the next two years to cover its cash burn and repay the debt, which include the bonds due in 2023, 500 million. Our estimate assumes that Saipen won't be able to draw down on its RCF because it may be already in breach of the maintenance covenants attached to it. You can have a look at our cash flow model on the website, which has a lot more details on this. Maybe just to take a step back as a final question, what led to this whole situation in the first place? Well, Saipem said that the COVID-19 crisis delayed project and many investments were postponed. Also recently, a LNG project in Mozambique was suspended because uh, there were armed attacks in the area. All this led to a backlog of about uh, $24.5 billion, which is a lot, considering that annual revenue before the pandemic was almost a third of it. The company also talked about cost increases in onshore ENC projects and issues with its offshore wind projects. As always, you can read more about these situations on our website, reorg.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another Reorg Europe podcast, but until then, stay safe and thank you very much for listening.